Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let us pray. Lord Father, as the, the psalm says, uh, let us come and worship you. Lord, let us just know and come to know you better. Let, our, let us just get ourselves out of the way because we want to see you for who you really are and what you want and just what we want you to be. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. Give us the ears to listen and the heart and the mind to grasp what it is. Lord, we want to be your people. Let it be so. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so I do hope that everyone is doing very well uh, this morning. If you have your Bible with you, and I, I do hope that you do, please go ahead and turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 1. So we're in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will have the verses on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, if you will find one of these around you, that's our gift to you. We want everyone to have their own copy of the Bible for themselves. Uh, today we're continuing in a series that we began last week, and we, we call this series Distinct. Not the stink, as some people have misinterpreted or misunderstood it, but distinct is what we're, we're looking at here. And really we're investigating what it is that is distinct about the Christian faith. What is it that makes Christianity distinct from what other religions out there may be saying or may be teaching what they may believe? There's a growing sentiment, growing belief in the world that all religions are really kind of the, the different paths to the same ends. They all, all roads lead to heaven kind of a thing. All religions worship the same God. And so what we're doing in the series is that we're systematically going through various topics and investigating whether or not that is in fact the case. So last week we began and we talked about God. What, what does the Bible say about God? And we compare what the Bible says about God versus what other religions say about God. And what we found is that the God of the Bible is radically different, very distinct from gods of other religions. The God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, alone is eternal, alone is all-powerful creator, alone our wonderful and good Father. He loves us personally with this unshakable, undying, unquenchable covenant love. And he desires to be just as good and generous and wonderful Father to us. So the God of the Bible is distinct in those ways. And so what we're looking at today is what I would consider to be the single most controversial issue on the planet. People. Folks, Get this, it's not God that's controversial. It's people that are controversial. It's what people say about God that's controversial. It's what people think about God that's controversial. It's what, how people react to God that's controversial. You know that politics isn't controversial? It's the politicians who are controversial. It's people, it's us. Why? Because we're argumentative, pugnacious, bunch of cusses is all that we are, right? We, we love to, to just fight and argue and we're divisive and we're contentious. And so we just, we create controversy when there's no controversy. It's, we're the issue. We're the problem. My life, your life would be so much better if it wasn't for people. My job, folks, I would have the best job on the planet if it wasn't for people. 
I'm just saying. Like, like, it, like my home, my home would be perfect bliss if it wasn't for people. Let me tell you what I hear all day long every day. A bunch of whining, crying, fussing, complaining, moaning, and groaning, and that's just me. Add to that, <laughs> add to that a six-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and an infant, and it's an all-day buffet of like wab burgers and French fries all day long, all day long. And, it's, and I love the kids. I love them. I genuinely love the kids. But, geez, like they make life so much more difficult. Loudness. It's so loud in my house. And it's just chaos. And it's just like unbelievable. It's, it's craziness. They destroy everything. They ride on everything. They break everything. It's just torment. And they disrupt my day. And I have good plans every day, and they never come true because of the kids. It's, it's people. It's my kids. It's people that make life so difficult. And, and I'll go so far as to say this, that the truly tragic stories in the world are not stories of people growing up in poverty. They're not stories of people growing up with a disability. It's the stories of someone who grew up with an abusive father. It's the stories of someone growing up with a, a mother who was addicted to a substance. It's the stories of that woman that was raped and, and stripped of her dignity. It's growing up in school and being bullied and harassed by folks at school. It's being a parent and watching your kids make the decisions that's going to lead to their destruction, to their ruin, right? It's the wife that cheats on her husband is the husband who beats his wife. Like, these are the truly tragic stories. Like, we make life so much more difficult than it need be. And it's not just on an individual level. Look at the, look at the global scene. Look at what's happening in, in the world around us or what's been going on. Just look at what the Nazis did. They exterminated six million Jews in just a few years. Look at what ISIS is doing in the Middle East now. Thousands are fleeing the Middle East. Refugees are fleeing the Middle East. Why? Not because of poverty, but because of these evil tyrants that are killing people. You know, regardless of what you may think politically about the issue, there is an illegal immigration crisis in the United States. And the reason why is that if you look south of the border, there are countries that are led by these corrupt regimes that oppress the people. Steal from them. Take advantage of them. Give them no opportunities. And so the whole world, it's refugees everywhere on the planet. And, and you look, and I mean... It is all this suffering and pain that we cause. Like, humanity is responsible for so much turmoil in, in the world. We're capable of so much evil and so much hatred. And then you look at the other side. Like, we're capable of so much good. Like, wonderful things. You look at works of art, like paintings and sculptures. Like, really, a person did that? And you hear people that can sing, like that comes out of a human mouth. Like, how is that possible? That's beautiful. Musicians and what they can do. You look at, at architectural wonders, the pyramids. It's so amazing what they did with the pyramids. Some people just assume aliens had to have done it. The Great Wall of China, 
bridges, skyscrapers. Folks, we've cured diseases. We have put a dude on the moon. You look at someone like a Mother Teresa who gave her life so selflessly to help the, the sick. Men and women in our military in willingly giving their lives to protect our freedoms. Policemen and women putting their lives in harm's way every day to keep our community safe. And then you look to that friend that stuck with you when you went through that hard time and they gave you a shoulder to cry on and gave you some wisdom and, and you would not have gotten through it had it not been for them. Folks, we're capable of just amazing amounts of goodness. So which is it? Which humanity is the real humanity? And, and every religion on the planet offers questions or answers to those questions like, who are we? Where did we come from? Why are we the way that we are? What should we be? Every religion steps into that space and tries to offer answers to this riddle that is humanity. And Christianity is no different. Christianity steps into that space and offers a very distinct answer to these questions. And that's what we're, that's what we're getting into. So let's just go ahead and, and get into the text, into the biblical text here. We're looking at Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 to 29. And let's just go ahead and read those verses together. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. These few verses are just pregnant with answers to these questions concerning our origin and, and our design and, and our purpose. God created us in his image. Now, first thing we got to note here is that there was a time where we did not exist. So we're not eternal beings. There was a very definitive moment in which God created us, like us as a race of living creatures, a race, not race says. Genesis chapter 1 will clearly show that there's only one human race, not races. That's a topic for another issue, another day. We'll get there some other time. But anyway, there's a distinct moment in time when we as a human family came into existence. And look again at verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's a conversation that takes place within the Godhead. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are having this divine conversation. And in triune unity, the one and only God who exists in three persons says, let us make man in our own image. And this, folks, is uniquely what makes us distinct out of everything in creation. What makes us distinct 
of everything else in the heavens and the earth is that we alone were made in the image of God. We are the imago Dei. We are God's image bearers, the imago Dei. And so then that, that leads us to a question, well, what does it mean to be the imago Dei? What does it mean to be God's image bearers, to have been made in his image? So let's answer the question this way. We're going to start off by saying what it is not. What it, what it, it's not to be an image bearer. Number one, it means that we're not replicas. To be made in the image of God does not mean that we are replicas of God. We are not copies of God. We're not divine facsimiles of God. We're, there's nothing divine about us. We are not little gods. We're not demigods, okay? Only God is God. Only God is creator, and we are the created. And there is a vast distinction between us as the, as the created and God as the creator. As much as me, we may want to think that we're God from time to time, as much as we may want to be God, as much as I may want to be the, the point of everything and the subject of everything and the center of everything, I am not God is. And so to have been made in his image does not mean that I somehow usurp God as the center of the universe. He alone is the center of everything. Okay, so that's not what it means. We're not replicas. All right, so now let's get into what it does in fact mean. What does it mean to be the imago Dei, the image of God? First, it means that we have the distinct honor and the privilege of reflecting the glory of God. To have been made in the image of God means that our purpose is to reflect the glory of God. Psalm 19, verse 1, very famous verse, Psalm 19, verse 1, says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. What that means is that if you look at the entirety of the cosmos, the, the universe and everything out there, you got nebulas, you got stars and comets and moons and planets, you got quasars, you got all this cool stuff happening out in space, right? Really, like, really neat stuff. Saturn with its rings. I mean, there's some neat, amazing stuff happening in the heavens. And what this verse says, that when we look up at the night sky, the night sky screams back at us, there is a God, and he is a majestic God. He is an all-powerful God. Just look. And so creation, just by its existence, twinkling stars are saying, there's a God, there's a God, and they're just declaring the glory, the glory of God. And then look at a verse like Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 3. That says that there are angels in heaven whose sole purpose for existing is to be in the very presence of God, singing and declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled, is full of his glory. So here's what scripture tells us, that Everything in creation, in the heavens and the earth, including angels, everything declares the glory of God. But let me tell you what, none of it can do what we can do. We alone can actually reflect the glory of God. We not only declare the glory of God through our existence, not only declare it through our singing and our praises and our voices, but we get to reflect the glory of God through our character. That the purpose of being made in the image of God is to imitate God. 
The way I like to, to always illustrate this is that God made us to be his mirrors in this world. We're made his mirror, so we're to reflect back to glory, back to God, who he is. So if God is good, then therefore we should reflect what in our lives? Goodness, right? We're to be imitators of God. This is what it means to be an image bearer, the imago Dei. Be good and gentle, be magnanimous and merciful, be compassionate and faithful, kind. Pursue that which is true and lovely and just and pure. Seek God in his righteousness. Be loving. Be an imitator. Be an imitator of God. That's what it means to have been made in his image. Have you ever noticed in your life that when you pursue a kind of life that does not reflect the good character of God, that it does not go well? Are, are you aware of this in your life at some point, that when you pursue sin and immorality and that kind of stuff, when you pursue stuff that is really not of the Lord, that it just really doesn't go very well for us, right? There, there's a reason that when we lie, we feel guilt. When we cheat, we feel shame. When we sleep around, we feel shame. There is not a guy that will get off the computer from visiting a, a, a porn site and not feel gross. Like, it, it's just, it, sin just has this hostile nature toward us. As much as we want it and cling to it, it does this thing to us. We, we feel conflicted. It, it creates like a spiritual, emotional, psychological angst in us. And why? And the reason why is because we're not made for sin and we're not made for godlessness. We're not made for immorality. We're made for righteousness and holiness and godliness. We're made to reflect the very image of God, his glory and his character. Uh, here's an example that a lot of you have heard me use a lot, so just bear with me. Imagine a fish. It's a cool fish. Doing this thing in the ocean. It's been doing this thing in the ocean forever, right? It's swimming. It's running away from the sharks, right? It's, it's just enjoying life. And then one day that fish decides, I'm tired of the water. I'm just sick and tired of all this water. You know what? That beach looks really nice. Look at those people. They got their sunscreen on. They're in a chair. They got their, their umbrella. They got their lemonade. Like they're, like, they're playing bocce out there. Like, like that looks really cool. You know what? I'm sick of this water junk. No one tells me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to jump up out of the water. I'm going to jump up on that beach. How well is it going to go for that fish? Fish jerky. It's not going to go very well for that fish. And the reason why is because the fish was made for the water. It's, all it's going to do when it jumps up on that sand is flap around and gasp for breath, right? Because it's made for the water. It's the same way with us. We're not created for that kind of rebellious, contentious, disobedient lifestyle. But we get a wild hair up in us. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> we get a wild hair, and we decide we know what's best, and we decide we know what we like and what we do. So we jump out of the waters of righteousness. We jump out of the waters that God created for us, and we jump into this sandy beach, and all we do is flap around and gasp for breath. It's because we're not made for that life. We're created for something so much better, a life that's so much more distinct than that. We're made to swim in this ocean of just goodness and grace and love and, and reflecting God's image. 
And I'll go so far as to say that when we live that way, or as we strive to live that kind of life, that's where we experience true freedom and true joy and true peace. Well, at least we'll be avoiding that stuff that causes the angst in us, at the very least. So I would recommend and suggest to everyone, take some time and evaluate your life. Evaluate your heart. What are you pursuing? Are you, are you pursuing, like, these earthly desires, earthly things? Are you scratching every sinful itch that you can get to? Are you, in essence, ignoring God and God's design for your life? Or are you pursuing God? Are you, are you leaning into God? Are you striving to imitate God because that's what you were made to do? So which is it? Evaluate your life. Are you imitating God or are you ignoring God? Be an image bearer. Be who you're supposed to be. So first thing that it means to be made in God's image is that we alone reflect God's glory. We alone get to reflect his character in all of creation. The second thing that it means is that we are stewards of creation. And over in the text, let's read it again. Verse 28, chapter 1, verse 28. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And what this means is that we are God's viceroy. Is that, if I may use a Star Wars term, right? That's the, most of you only know it from Star Wars. Right? We're God's viceroy, which technically means that we're appointed officials. We're God's representatives on earth. And we're meant to rule the planet in peace. We're stewards of this thing. He's given us the highest rank in all of creation. The highest status in the natural order. So we're to subdue the animals. We, we have status over the animals. And we have status or stewardship over creation. We are endowed with this unique relationship with the earth and everything on it, we're its stewards. We're to manage it, take care of it, watch over it. And, and that really has at least two really, really important implications for us. Number one, it means that we get to bring order to animal chaos. That we, we get to bring a, a, a level of order to, to what is only chaotic in the animal world. So we get to domesticate animals. We get to train animals. We get to help them, teach them how to be our pets, right? Whether they're an outside dog or an inside dog, right? We, we get to thin the herd if we need be, because sometimes the herd gets too big. And that's okay to do, and that's the right thing to do. It's actually in their best interest. That's why we, we have hunters out there thinning the herd at wild, a deer. That's a good thing. It's also why we fight for the endangered species. And we do this. We train them. We domesticate them. We take care of them. We love them. We, we use them. There are servants. Never means that in any shape, form, or fashion is any level of animal cruelty okay. Like the fact that we're stewards over creation, that we've been given this charge by God over animals, never means that we can torture or torment an animal. I would go so far as to say that any torture of an animal is pure, like, wickedness. It's just evil just wrong but so taking care of animals in the right way is actually an imago day issue we're stewards right 
take care of the animals. We get to eat them, make jerky out of them. That's a good thing, right? Watch over them. All right, the other implication that it means that we're stewards of God means that really, and I'm speaking to the Christian here, no one should outgreen the Christian. What I mean by that is that there should be no one more concerned about the environment than the Christian. And the reason why is because we believe that God created the earth. And that when he was done creating the earth, it actually very specifically tells us in the biblical text, it is very good. God said his assessment of what he he made was, it is very good. And then he handed the reins over to us. So we are going to be held accountable for what we do with the planet. So we should care. No one should care more about pollution or polar ice caps or the oceans or the forest more than a follower of Jesus. No one should outgreen us. Never. Like we should conserve more better than anyone else. We should lead the effort. We should lead the effort in that environmentalism is an Imago Dei issue. Because we're made in the image of God and been entrusted with stewardship over creation, let's take care of it. Let's watch over it. That, and then also, if we do that, maybe we don't have to hear any more commercials with Sarah McLaughlin singing in the background, like bringing tears about animal cruelty. So enough of that already. A little heavy-handed, aren't you, Sarah? <laughs> anyway, all right. That we are made in, the, in God's image means that we alone reflect the glory of God. It means that we are stewards over creation, number three, It means that human life is sacred. It means that human life is sacred. We believe in the sanctity of human life because we are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 tells us that the very reason why God abhors murder so much is because it's taking the life of someone who has been made in his image. That the first command that God gave after, Ad, after Adam and Eve, after Jonah, Jonah, I'm all over the place, after Noah, I know my Bible, I went to seminary, I promise. All right. The very first command that God gave to Noah and his family when they got off the boat was, don't kill, specifically because they're made in my image. So, you know that the Christian faith demands a pro-life position on the issue of abortion. It does. It's an Imago Dei issue. It's a sanctity of life issue. Folks, I'm going to try to unpack this in a way that that hopefully this will help. I am genuinely pro-choice. Stay with me. I am all for a woman's right to do whatever she wants to with her body. I am all for it. Ladies, all of you here in the world, Tattoo yourself if you want to. Do all the piercings to your body if you want to. Weight train if you want to. Lose weight if you want to. Have the cancer removed from your body if you want to. Have the tonsils removed from your body if you want to. You can wear whatever you want to. You can wear Birkenstocks. I don't get it, but you can wear Birkenstocks if that's what if, if you're into it. All right. <laughs> you can do whatever you want to to your body. I have no right to dictate to you what you can do. You have choice. That baby is not the woman's body. And there's the distinction. That baby, it's its own person 
that baby is an entirely different body. You know, that that baby, not it, he or she, from the moment of conception is a human being. Science bears that out. Science can, can actually affirms that from the very moment of conception, that baby, that person has all the DNA necessary to be its own individual, its own human, its own person in the world. And that baby is someone who is made in the very image of God. Their, their life is precious. Their life is sacred. They, they deserve dignity. Well, it doesn't count because they can't take care of themselves. The baby can't take care of itself, so it doesn't really count. Well, then let's go ahead and give license to anyone who wants to get rid of a child who's one or two or three that has a disability because they can't take care of themselves. So you see how a slippery slope, when you start making arguments out there, it is a person, and regardless, they deserve dignity and honor. They're precious. They're sacred. If, if God came down and he said, Rick, bless your heart. You mean well. But let me tell you, that baby is just tissue. It's not a baby. Folks, the debate's over. It's over. But Scripture tells us otherwise. Like it tells us that from the moment of conception, that is an individual human life. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. The psalmist is speaking, praying to God. You, God, you formed my inward parts. You needed me together in my mother's womb. In my mother's womb. You know, we look back at history and we look at the atrocity of the Holocaust during World War II. Nazi Germany exterminated six million Jews. And it is a holocaust. And we look back at that and, and we cringe at how can someone, how can people, how can a nation do that to a group of people? Six million lives lost. And you know that in the last 40 years, this nation has exterminated 55 million babies. 55 million. Folks, Nazism is a rank amateur compared to what this nation is doing to unborn babies. Our tax dollars are going to fund the killing of babies. It is permissible by the law to take that human life and folks, if, if you're a Christian, if there's, if there's any degree of Christian faith in us, if we genuinely believe in God and in his majesty, there needs to be outcry. There needs to be an outrage and not on Facebook. I'm pro-choice, like that post. So what? I'll be honest with you. So what? What difference does it make? I mean, if we're going to do anything, we've got to vote a certain way. Send letters, not Facebook posts. Send letters to our congressmen and our senators. Pray that God would raise up men and women of conviction.
that would get to where certain laws and rulings can be overturned. And pray for those who serve us at that level of government now that God would convict their hearts. That they now would begin to take steps toward overturning what is genocide. You know, we, it's easy for us to get on ISIS. Look at what they're doing over there. They're beheading Christians. They're rank amateurs, folks, quite frankly, by comparison. We're doing it to unborn babies. Now, listen here. We get very amped up and very angst when this issue comes up. Those of us that are conservative evangelicals, right? Like, this, this, we start fist pumping at this one. There's like a rallying cry when we start talking about abortion. And, and, and rightly so, right? Because it's a travesty, it's tragic, it's a terrible thing that is happening. And I want us to remember, as we have this conversation here or elsewhere, that those ladies who walk into those abortion clinics, they're made in the image of God, too. And God loves them deeply. God loves those ladies as much as he loves anyone else ever. At the end of the day, these ladies, they walk into these clinics. And it's a function of what is an extremely bad decision, right? A sinful decision, but a bad decision. Maybe they just don't want to be inconvenienced at that time in their lives because that's what having a baby might mean. It might mean, it might be that a man bullied them into it because the man's the one that doesn't want to be inconvenienced. It might be that she's single and she just is afraid, and she doesn't know how it's going to go for her, and she's afraid how she's going to provide. It might mean that mommy and daddy are going to disown her, and the church is going to kick her out, and she's going to get like be an outcast in society. And folks, we need to understand that regardless of the reason why any of these women walk through those doors and have that procedure done, as awful as that sin is, they are made in the image of God, and God loves them. There is not a person in this room who is not a sinner in need of grace. Let him who is without guilt cast the first stone. First, we're not here to judge. We're here to help. Help the mothers who are struggling. I've actually known women who've confessed to me that they've had an abortion in the past. They're riddled with guilt. They're broken. There's a tremendous amount of remorse, every single one of them, that they, they deal with and they fight with. And they need to know that their sin can outsend the love of God. That God's grace is more than sufficient, more than abundant to take that sin and wipe it away and wash it clean and remove it as far as the east is from the west. That there is hope on the other side of that sin. They're image bearers. Just made a bad decision. Now, I want to move on from that and just point out where we often can be extremely hypocritical about all of this. 
Again, evangelical Christians, man, holy cow, like this is, we'll, we'll burn down the world on this issue. Man, we get amped up. There's posts. We get excited. Meaning it's just rallies and protests and everything. We get amped up over the abortion issue. Why? Because it's a sanctity of life issue. Why? Because it's an Imago Dei issue. We're made in the image of God and life is precious. Folks, it is not only the unborn kid that is made in the image of God. It is the rest of humanity. And therefore, there is no room for any prejudice, any bigotry, any racism of any sort ever under any conditions on the planet. We are all equals before God and have been endowed by our creator with dignity. How we treat our fellow man is an Imago Dei issue. How an image bearer of God treats another image bearer of God. Never with malcontent. We don't mistreat our fellow human beings who are made in the image of our creator. We don't mock them. We don't verbally uh, assault them. We don't condescend them. We don't make them feel inferior. They're made in the image of God. We don't cuss people out. We don't curse them. They're made in the image of God. We lift them. We help them. We bless them. Build them up. How we treat others is an Imago Dei issue. All right. So those are the three things. Just for the sake of this morning, this is what it means to have been made in the image of God. We alone reflect the glory of God. We are stewards over creation. And human life is sacred, right? It's worth fighting for and protecting. Now, how does that all compare with some other religions out there? So just going to do a quick survey of a few of them. Number one, Hinduism. So Hinduism teaches that people are eternal, whereas we would say that there was a point in time where humanity came into existence and we individually came into existence. Well, Hinduism teaches that we've always existed like, we're just part of this kind of non-ending, eternal uh, cycle of reincarnation. It's what's happening, what, what, what the, the Hindu would teach. Life is simply this process, this over and over process. And if you happen to do more good in this life than bad, then in the next life, you may come back as a person who's more prestigious has a greater status, a, a better, greater person in the world. If you happen to do more bad than good when you come back in the next life, you may come back as some form of animal. So in Hinduism, there really is no distinction between animal and human. Whereas we would say in Christian circles, we would say that we have status over the animals and we're not the same. In Hindu, it's all the same. It's all the same. Furthermore, in, in Hinduism, Hinduism does not believe in the equality of people. So they teach that there is a caste system, C-A-S-T-E, a caste system. Everyone is born into the system, and people are ranked into one of four classes. You're born into one of four classes. The priests are like the religious elite in the world. The rulers, so the presidents, kings, military commanders, those guys, commoners, and then the servants. So the priests are above the, the warriors or the rulers, the rulers are above the commoners, and the servants are like the lowest possible tier of humanity. It is like, it is the scourge of existence. And they, they, they view the servants so lowly that servants can't practice the Hindu religion. 
they can't take part in religious, religious ritual. So that's what the Hindu believes. What about the Buddhist? Again, this is like the hardest one to nail down. Uh, but in Buddhism, animate and inanimate objects are all the same. Um, it's all one and the same. It's the universe and everything is just this ongoing, continuous, eternal flow of unceasing spiritual energy slash consciousness. And you happen to be manifesting a portion of the universe now as you are, but when you cease to exist, your essence, which is not you, by the way, it's just the universe, your essence then later may become a rock or a tree or another person or a star, but they're all the same. And what that means is that in Buddhism, there is no individuality. There's no personhood. There's no individual identity. Whereas in Christian circles, we would say, no, God knit me in my mother's womb. He made me. He knows me. He knows the hairs on my head. He knows me by name. I'm an individual. So, but in Buddhism, they, they teach something very differently. You're just, there, there's no unchanging soul is how they put it. You don't possess a soul. You're just part of the universal essence. It's, it's hard to understand. Anyway, all right, we'll move on. How about Mormonism? Mormonism teaches this, and most people don't know this, uh, about their, their doctrine, that God in heaven is a man. He is a man who pro- went up the spiritual ladder, pro- got promoted, in essence, and became God of this specific universe. And that God is in heaven now with an infinite number of women having continuous ongoing sex, and they're having spiritual babies in heaven. And then on earth, as men and women, you know, husbands and wives, as we do our thing, and we have babies, the spiritual babies in heaven come and inhabit the physical form of that new baby. Well, that's really different than what Christianity says, because in Christianity, it's like, no, 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 it begins at conception, and God knits me in my mother's womb, not God is in heaven having sex, literally physical sex in heaven with a bunch of concubines, in essence. On top of that, Mormonism doesn't believe in equality. So historically, their official teaching is highly bigoted highly prejudiced, extremely racist. They don't believe in the equality between men and women. Again, it is the man, man, guys, we, we, we look out in Mormonism, apparently, because we can, we can become God, and we can have endless getting it on forever. <laughs> With no consequences, apparently, right? And women, uh, the highest you can achieve is one of those concubines in heaven. Like, there's no equality between, between the two. All right, uh, I'll end with this one. Zoroastrianism. Again, the joke from last week. Everyone knows how to spell that, right? Kind of unimportant. It's a, it's a smaller religion, but um, I, I chose these four because they kind of sort of encompass or summarize the general picture of what everyone would say on the issue. Anyway, in Zoroastrianism, they teach that there are two gods. There's a good God and there's a bad God. And they've been pitted against one another, kind of sort of in this eternal battle between good and evil. So they've been going at it. The good God comes up with a plan. I know how to beat the bad God. I'm going to create the universe. 
and everything in it. So the universe and everything in it was specifically made to help the good God beat the bad God. What that means is that we have no purpose for existing other than we are literally pawns fighting God's battle because he can't. So that's what Zoroastrianism teaches. So here's the question. Do those four religions, those four belief systems, are they compatible with what the Bible says about who we are? They're mutually exclusive, right? They're, they're so drastically opposed. They're not just the Christianity to even one another, right? There's no way that they all can be right. There's no way that they can all be right. So who then is right? Which belief system, which worldview has it, has it correct? And, you know, before we answer that question, I think we probably should discuss one more truth that Christianity teaches about humanity and who we are. And it's this. God created us to love us. In eternity past, God, triune God, is having this conversation, right? He's, a, he's having this existence with himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and it's bliss and it's glory and it's outpouring, continuous, divine love within the Godhead. And to humanize the conversation a bit, God says, I've got an idea. I want to love something outside of myself. I want to love someone apart from me. So God goes to work and he creates the expanse of the cosmos. And in this cosmos, he puts billions upon billions of galaxies. And he happened to choose this one specific galaxy. And in it, he puts this little tiny ball of dirt. We call it earth. And on earth, he places men and women made in his image. And the question is why? And the answer is to love us. To pour love, to share love with something apart than himself. He, he is not just God and not just creator. He is father. He's a father. He's a gracious and good, benevolent father. Look at verse 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And here you see at the very beginning of creation, God provides everything that his people needs, right? Food. And if you turn the page to the next chapter, there's a beautiful garden and there's, there's rivers that run through there and there's gold. It's just a beautiful place. He provides everything that they need and he walks with them in the cool of the day. And so, it's, so I want you to understand that God only, does not only provide for our material needs, our physical needs. It's not just the here and now. God wants to provide so much more. Verse 29 is pointing to so much more than simply physical needs. God wants to come in and, and redo our heart and take care of our heart, take care of our mind, fix our brokenness, wipe away our tears. It's not just the here and now that God seeks to bless. He, more importantly, it's, it's the afterlife. It's what comes after this life that God is really particularly concerned about, right? He wants to love us not just now and the here and now in this world. He wants to love us for all eternity where we're with him in his presence. But there's a problem, and that problem is sin. 
We are riddled with, with sin. That it's, it's a great problem, the great uh, issue that we face, that we are made in God's image, but we have been marred. We've been stained. The, the mirrors that we're supposed to be of God has been distorted and warped to such a degree that we can no longer reflect the glory and the character of God. So we look at our lives and we see the, the lying and the gossip and the malice and the lust, the addictions, hurting people. We, we look at the greed and the jealousy. We, I mean, what's true of us and, and the people around us. I know that this is the great problem. This is why we are so capable of so much evil and hatred in the world. It's because sin entered the world and along with it death and it's been passed on from generation to generation. But the, the good news is that God's love is not easily restrained. It is not easily thwarted at all. And so God intervened and God said, I have a fix. I have a cure. I have a cure for this sin that characterizes your life. I, I know how to take care of it. I love you so much. And so God the Father sent the Son, Jesus, into this world. And Jesus, who is God, became like one of his image bearers. And then he lived this sinless life, the life we're supposed to live, right? We're supposed to reflect the character of God. Jesus did it perfectly, perfectly. And in obedience, submission to the Father, Jesus willingly marched to a cross. And on, on that, that way to the cross, he was beaten and he was slapped and he was tormented, he was tortured, he was whipped and shamed and, and Scripture says that the, the assault on Christ was so utterly brutal that he did not even look human when they were done with him. His semblance was not that of man. And a while back, I asked myself, why does Scripture tell us that Jesus was so disfigured that he didn't look human? And the answer, folks, is that Jesus was made to look on the outside the way that we look on the inside. That God, when he sees us in our sin, he sees that which is not human. For we were not made for godlessness. We were not made for immorality. We were not made for pornography. We were not made for lying. We were not made for cheating. We were made to swim in an ocean of righteousness and godliness and goodness. But Jesus, in love, he substituted himself. He goes to that cross, beaten and marred. And there he takes your sin and my sin, your guilt and my guilt. And he, the, he gets placed on his shoulders. And he says, I will bear it all for you. I don't want you to have to deal with this anymore. I've got it. I've got you. And God pours out wrath on Christ so that he does not have to be poured out on us. Folks, that's love. That's mercy. That's grace. And now, whosoever believes in the name of Jesus, whoever confesses that they're a sinner and repents of their sin and gives their life over to Christ, they're spared. The mirror is fixed. The distortion is removed. The marring is cleaned by the blood of Christ. And Jesus died. He did not remain dead. This is the best part of the story. Third day, he rose again because he's God. And now whosoever believes in him shall receive mercy. And I want you to understand that no other religion on the planet comes close to putting us on such a pedestal. 
that God would make us in his image to reflect him, that he would give us stewardship over the earth, that we make our lives sacred, and that he personally would do all of this simply to love us. No other religion, no other religion, no other worldview, no other world system, none of it comes close to saying this about who we are and why we are here. So the question is, how do you react? How, do you, how should we respond? If this is true, folks, how should we respond to this? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We're made in the image of God to imitate God. And it begins with faith. It begins, it begins with a moment of initial belief where we give our lives to Christ. We entrust ourselves over to him. We confess and we give our lives. We receive grace that we may be forgiven, that we may be elevated to the position of sons and daughters of the Most High God. It begins with that moment, and that moment is the moment of true hope where we can then look forward to the, the day to come, the age to come, the, the life after this one where we're guaranteed a seat at the banquet table with God forever and ever. It begins there. If you've never done that, I urge, plea, beg that you do that now where you're sitting. And for those of us who we've made that commitment, we are true followers of Jesus, imitate him. Love God, love others. Bless people. Help your neighbor. Give wisdom. Pursue that which is true and lovely, pure and just. Pursue a life of goodness and gentleness. Fight for life. Take care of what God has entrusted to us. Let's Make disciples, teaching them what we've been taught, that they may be love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. So I'm going to ask everyone just to, to bow your head where you are and for you to pray and you personally to respond to the Lord however you need to. What have you been convicted of? What, what do you need to confess to the Lord? And after a quick moment, the praise team will lead us in song. Lord, Father in heaven, we give you praise this morning. We thank you for your kindness to us, for the gift of your Son, Lord, the gift of the cross, the gift of new life that we could have by grace through faith. Thank you that you have made us, Lord, in your image to reflect your goodness. You have told us and shared with us what is good and right and proper for our lives, Lord. And now may we be a people that pursue that kind of life,
trusting in you, depending on you every moment of every day. Lord, Scripture tells us that you see us as a treasured possession. You, you see us as a royal diadem, as a crown of beauty, Lord, and how amazing is that? And that explains why you love us so much. That explains why your son was willing to die on a cross for us. Lord, I pray now that we would all make commitments, that we would dedicate our lives to you in such a way, Lord, that we would live this life of being an image bearer, imitating you, reflecting your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Let's stand and